Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was born on the land of some of the ancestors who were being repatriated, which made it extra personal if it wasn't already personal enough. Wow, that must have been amazing. It was certainly one of the highlights of my time here. It will probably be one of the highlights of my career. I was honoured to be part of it. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. What a thrill it is to be back at Short Black with one of Australia's leading scientists and one of our best international exports. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to Dr. Rebecca Johnson AM. G'day, Rebecca. Welcome. G'day, Sandra. Great to be with you. For a way of introduction, I want to explain. You're currently the Chief Scientist and the Associate Director of Science. Get this, everyone. At the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History an Aussie STEM guru leading the way. So I wanted to say g'day because I figured you didn't get that very much these days living downtown in Washington. I, I don't get that very often and I don't get to say that often. So it's, um, it's great to be with you. Tell me about you and, and your story. How long have you held this role? Because it's an exceptional opportunity for an Australian to be the chief scientist at the Smithsonian, one of the, the world's most renowned museums of natural history. Now, first and foremost, congratulations. How did it all happen? Thank you. I think we can all remember what we were doing in March 2020. That's when I joined my new job at the largest natural history museum in the world. <laughs> so so it, was, it was quite a time to change countries, to change jobs into a very big leadership role. Um, certainly there was a lot of call for novel leadership at the beginning of the pandemic in particular. And I came here from Australia where I was previously the chief scientist at the Australian Museum. And I had spent the previous 16 years of my career at that same museum. You must rate this as a pretty big feather in your cap. Was this a career goal? I never thought I would end up working in a museum, but as soon as the opportunity presented itself many, many years ago, nearly two decades ago, I thought, wow, what an amazing opportunity. Before I worked at the Australian Museum, I was working as a geneticist in Boston, actually. So I was in the US for a little while. And um, this job came up at the Australian Museum as a manager of the DNA laboratory there. And I thought, wow, that sounds super cool. I, as a geneticist, wow, that would be awesome. It's in Sydney, which is where I grew up. Imagine what it's like to work in a museum. And nearly two decades later, here I am. <laughs> so I never, I never imagined that I would, be, I would end up in a leadership role in a museum. And I certainly didn't envisage being at the Smithsonian. It's an amazing place to be. And I am very passionate about the work of museums. Must have been pretty scary at the time because you moved over there on your own 
you had to set up shop, inculcate yourself, you know, into the, the museum. Was it shut down at the time? Yeah, so I had to do all of those things. You're absolutely right. And I started on the 2nd of March and we closed down on the 11th, sorry, the 13th. So I had I had 11 days to kind of say, hey, everyone, um, I'm your, your new boss. Please show me to my office. Okay, everyone pack up your things and please leave as sensibly and quickly as you possibly can. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was really <laughs> quite an experience, particularly in the US because every, everyone knows that US healthcare is, you know, we talk about it a lot. When I arrived, I, you know, it took me a while to, you know, get my payroll and, and my health insurance. So with the global pandemic looming all around, I was wondering how on earth I would even visit a doctor because that was all new to me in a different country. So how, how many staff do you have? We have over 400 staff here at the museum, at the Natural History Museum, and about 70% of those staff are in the sciences. So I have, I have a large chunk of the organisation, which is, which is also very special. Science is our core. And so, so we have a lot of people doing science, but that was also a lot of people to meet. I'm still meeting some people in person now, and it was a lot of people to kind of coordinate with at a time when it was there was a lot of urgency in terms of management and leadership and communication. Well, communication would have all been via Zoom. So, you know, you have six or seven days to get your feet wet, run around the building, try and meet as many people as you can, order them home and then meet them over Zoom for what, another 12 to 18 months? The best part of two years it ended up being. And it's interesting because I guess we, you just adapt to these things. We, we're a very large organisation. We're, we're, we have a very large building footprint. So you can spend hours and hours and hours and never see the same thing just in our public spaces. Behind the scenes is even bigger. So that's where most of our staff are. That's where a lot of our collections are. We have 148 million specimens and objects just in our museum. A lot of them are here on the mall where I am right now, but also a large percentage of them are at our offsite facility, which is a about a 20-minute drive away in Maryland. Funny, when I arrived, before people kind of really grasped that the pandemic was on its way, people said to me, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that we have these two sites. They're geographically not that far away, but it's far enough that the sites feel very separate. Well, you know, to your point about meeting everyone via Zoom, suddenly we, we meet via Zoom all the time. People that wouldn't have run into each other pre-pandemic now see each other on Zoom and have actually formed, in some cases, a lot of a lot tighter collaborations have done so through that environment. So I guess it's a, it's a matter of making a positive out of something that is, um, there was no other way. And certainly that's how I have communicated with many of my staff, some of whom I still haven't met in person, but I feel like I know really well. As an Australian, what do you think you bring to the job? Ah, oh, that's... Um, that's an interesting question. I, I guess um, coming from a museum background, one thing that for those people that love museums, probably this is not a surprise to you. Museums tend to be the same all around the world. We tend to study similar things. We feel we're a very global community. We collaborate a lot with our sister organisations. So coming to another museum was actually not a huge change 
we do similar things in the way that we store collections. The type of science that we do is similar. The, the way that we handle data is similar. So all of those things were very familiar to me. But um, coming to the US, I think people really like the, the straightforwardness of Australians. They, they really like that we're prepared to straight talk. Some people, it's refreshing to have someone say no, people tell me. that They don't like it, but no at least gives you a, a very clear answer. So I think that style, which I, I would say is probably something that we're, is the way that we would consider ourselves in Australia, has worked pretty well in the US. Are there any parts of the museum that you would regard as your favourite? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I definitely cannot choose my favourite children. I, I would say um, one of the most amazing parts of this job, one of my, my great joys and, and points of pride is the work that I have done as a geneticist and as a collaborator Certainly when you work in genomics, you rely on a lot of a lot of different expertise, which is a really fulfilling part of science. So I loved the science that I did, but certainly one of the most fulfilling parts of this job is the ability to make connections among people and facilitate collaborations. Um, be, being a connector is certainly part of being a chief scientist and, and um working towards some of those big picture goals, like how are we going to tackle some of the big challenges in the ocean? Or what do we think about Indigenous science? What, what is the perspective of the science from, from a Western perspective compared to an Indigenous perspective? Some of those big, big strategic ideas are really fun and something that I find the most enjoyable and most satisfying part of the job. You have so many accolades to your name, you know, appointments, honorary fellow of the Australian Museum 2020, certified wildlife forensic scientist, the Royal Society of New South Wales, a member of the Australian Academy of Forensic Sciences, uh, a member of the Order of Australia, Eureka Prizes uh, Medal, awarded Chief Executive Women's Scholarship to attend INSEAD, which is, you know, exceptional. It goes on and on. Qantas 100 Inspiring Australians, Harper Bazaar, Australia's Women of the Year, and name one of CEO Magazine's 10 Leading Businesswomen. So plenty of acknowledgement in Australia and in international science circles. You know, as you say, you're a global community, so your work is broadly known. In 2013, you established a world-first koala genome consortium with the goal of sequencing the genome of koala. Now, it's a beloved Australian animal. We know they're endangered. What sort of cachet is that giving you <laughs> over there? Because the world loves koalas and you're responsible for trying to save them. It's, um, <laughs> it's certainly, I, I have to say, even, even when, when I established that project back in the very early days when it was a very small group of us collaborating it was very easy to open doors by saying hey um, are you interested in working with us on the koala genome it is an extraordinary animal and they are all they're also very interesting so you can ask lots of really interesting questions of a genome it definitely you're right here even when I meet human geneticists who really wouldn't know one non-human animal from another <laughs> they definitely know the koala and, and they're interested in kind of the compare. What, what does a koala look like when you compare it to a human from a genomic perspective? So, so it certainly does open some doors and um, helps that it's a very recognisable animal. I, I would say one of the um, 
one of the most exciting things about that project is that we, it ended up being a very large collaboration. We had over 50 people working on that original genome project and it's now become a project for everyone. So um, I'm delighted to see that there's additional money that's going into sequencing more genomes so that the genomes of animals that need to be managed, the management is literally happening as a science-guided management, which is really exciting. And, and I'm, I appreciate all of the investment that's gone into it. And, and it really makes that original project worthwhile, which was the first time anything like that had been done in Australia, which was terrifying but also exciting and we learned a lot. Well thank goodness you did it because you know this iconic species is uh, I guess at its most endangered. You would have seen through the summer bushfires even though you're living in the states you know how many areas of the koala population were decimated. It was just heartbreaking. Do you still stay connected with you know how the species is faring because at the moment things aren't looking great? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I still have some very close friends and collaborators who are doing all of that amazing work and, and will be generating data that, that will be used for management of the remaining animals. Uh, it was pretty devastating to see the number of animals that were lost to, through those fires and the kind of damage to the environment. Unfortunately, it was. it's just an extra threat that happens through all of the things that we have already laid on koalas as humans. So, um, yeah, I, I, I watch very closely and, and you might be surprised that my mum <laughs> sends me a lot of news articles about koalas. <laughs> so as soon as you end up in a, in a role like this or as a scientist, you end up having a whole, whole family cheer squad who, who are very interested in anything that is relevant to your work. Well, it's probably a big ask, but I'm hoping you can give me some reassurance that the koala is going to make it. I'm a huge believer in science-based decisions and, and I am impressed at the amount of work that's being going that's going in to, to understanding like we're almost at understanding the we're certainly at understanding the individual population level. We're close to understanding the individual level, which let's hope it doesn't get to that because that would be pretty dire and it would cost a lot of money. No, oh, and a nation would be heartbroken if not the world. I cannot imagine Australia without koalas and I don't think anyone can. So thinking about what reduces them in number is really important and what might be done to mitigate that so that we can start reversing that trend, if definitely stopping it, if not improving it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. about your typical day? A typical day is talking to a lot of people, having such a big team and we have so much going on at our museum. We're doing a lot of work here at the moment, 
reviewing how, you know, what, what are our science priorities? Do we have the kind of science structure that we want to be a 21st century organization? What are our biggest priorities as far as our collection goes? How do we make them digitally available to the public? If we're going to invest in science, what work will that be? Will it be looking at oceans? Will it be looking at making data more available? So a typical day often involves discussing any and all of those things. Um, it could be meeting with other people from other parts of the Smithsonian. It's a really big organisation. We have 21 museums and a zoo. So there's, there's plenty of other things going on within, this, within just our organisation. Then just down the road, we have the National Science Foundation. We have the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is actually an arm of the White House that does science. So there's tons of people, even locally, that are really, we all work together on various science projects. So would it be fair to say that your role is really to guide and shape discussion and engagement and to keep that conversation relevant, current and, and even forging new directions? And where do you get your inspiration? Which museums catch your eye? Who are the best of the best that you believe rank with the Smithsonian? Oh, it's, yeah, look, it's, that's a really good question. I would say that I see my, my role is like a giant funnel of funneling information from my experts. I have, I have the world experts in pretty much every field that we have. So funneling their input and their expertise and their ideas into something that is a, could be a big strategic project and then communicating that out to all of those other agencies, to either US agencies, to our partners overseas to potential donors that might be interested in the kind of work that we're doing. So, so it's kind of, it's a big ex information exchange both ways, I would say. As far as other organizations that are super influential, they come from all over. Certainly we, we all work very closely together as natural history museums. And, and then there's lots of inspiration to be had from just how other places engage with the public. I think one thing that is important to all of us is that we know that there's a lot of, we have a lot of challenges in the world today. From our perspective, we, we know that we're facing the big threats of climate change and, and what happens to us as humans and what happens to the biodiversity around us as we change the planet. So we actually have the kind of expertise that helps us think hard on those questions. But how do we communicate that to people walking on the street that have a thousand other things to think about and might not really even know if they want to do something to change that, what do they do? So, so we think a lot about how we communicate effectively to the public without making it all doom and gloom because it's not, but certainly we can't just let things continue the way they are without changing our behaviour to improve the state of the planet. Um, so there, I, I think engaging with people and Demystifying the science. Yeah. The trick in what you do is demystifying that sort of next level of conversation where, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, I don't have a science background, so I, I don't want to feel stupid, but I'm passionate about what you do. I just don't always understand it. Exactly. No one should be made feel stupid in a conversation. If that is an outcome, then we need to do better at communicating. And so, so we do think a lot about how to connect with people. Firstly, something that they might be interested in. If we're competing with TikTok and YouTube and streaming services, how do we connect that our content is interesting and worth engaging with? 
and also that it's not polarizing. Unfortunately, I think this is something we've seen across the world in the last two years that science has become a little bit political, which makes me really sad because science is science and it's it's complicated and it changes and we add information and sometimes we modify our conclusions because we have more information, but that usually doesn't make the original science wrong. One thing that you've been a part of just recently is the repatriation of uh, the bones of 25 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ancestors being returned from the Smithsonian to Australia. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, that was, um, I, I would say it was certainly one of the highlights of my time here. It will probably be one of the highlights of my career, just to see something that people had been waiting for a very long time to happen and to be just a small part of it, you know, coincidentally as a person working in that institution, not as an Australian travelling over, it was really special. I think so many Australians understand why it's so important to our Indigenous Australians to have those bones repatriated and many museums around the world have been reluctant to do so. For the Smithsonian, I think it's the third repatriation. How big a role did you play in that? And as you said, it was pretty personally significant. Yeah, it was. So so by the time I arrived in March 2020, we were planning it. We had plans to do this ceremony in 2020 and obviously everything changed. And I, I thought, wow, how extraordinary that I happen to arrive and I, I get to be present when something so significant happens. In Australia, we have been doing repatriation for pretty actively since the 1990s but it's a much newer thing here in the United States to do what, what we here in the US would call an international repatriation. I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing to be part of this. I know, you know, just from my knowledge of it, that the communities and the elders have been waiting a long time for this. And so when it finally happened, we were able to spend some time with a couple of members of the communities and elders came over from South Australia to be here. And we spent the day beforehand with them they spent some time with the ancestors, which was really special. And 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 then um, we did a smoking ceremony on the on the front lawn of the museum. For those people that have been to the, our museum, it was out on Constitution Avenue, and I was so proud. <laughs> I, and and they were really proud. People were asking me, "Oh, do you think it's okay if we come and watch?" And I said, "I think." I think they're so proud to, to show their culture and to then that they're able to accompany these ancestors home that they would be absolutely fine with people watching. So we had a we had a ceremony and we had an acknowledgement of country from one of our senior undersecretaries here at the Smithsonian, who is an indigenous man. That was also really special to have an Indigenous person from the United States welcome them to country. Wow, that must have been amazing to see. Yeah, it was really amazing. And when I, I was learning about the people from the communities that were travelling over to, to here to accompany the ancestors back, I was blown away to see that they were from South Australia, a couple of them not very far from where I was born, which, was, which is in a very small town on the York Peninsula. I was born on the land of some of the ancestors who were being repatriated, which made it extra personal if it wasn't already personal enough. Yeah, it, it has 
got very limited coverage here in Australia, which is a bit disappointing, but it doesn't really matter. The significance of the actual event and being able to witness it must have been, especially for someone from that area, I mean, extraordinary coincidence. But for you, in, in your role, being able to facilitate that, that final stage of the journey must have, as you said, been really, really special. I was honoured to be part of it. What's on the horizon for you at the moment? As far as exciting things on the horizon goes, we have just created an informatics and data science centre here at the museum, which is really about turning those 148 million specimens and objects that I mentioned earlier into digital data that can be discoverable to anyone in the world. So anyone could go on and find what we have in our collection and ideally see an image of it. So that is, that's one of our big goals is to, is to turn our collection digital. It's an extraordinary collection to come and look at and we have thousands of research visitors a year that come and work with it. We like to make it more accessible even than it is currently. Another big initiative that we are just starting is an ocean science centre. You're asking earlier, what, what is the role of a chief scientist or, you know, what are the things that, that the goals that I would have being here? I, I often say that we are fortunate enough to have the best experts in the world at what they do and, and they, have, they build extraordinary knowledge, they do extraordinary things, they're always making new discoveries, whether or not it's describing new species or going out and, and understanding how a landscape works as an ecosystem. There's constantly new discoveries here, but it tends to be, museum science tends to be quite individual. And so we have a lot of individually excellent people who together actually work on big things like the ocean. So by doing something like an ocean science centre, we can get all of our experts together as in working on their own but related projects to show just kind of what impact we can have in those kind of spaces. So we have people that work in the deep sea. We have people that work with Indigenous people that live on the ocean or on the coast. We have people that work in mangroves, understanding how they might sequester carbon. When you put all of those things together, it's actually we have a pretty big package of helping us to understand big parts of our natural world. Those are some of the initiatives that, that we're really working on at the moment to show the impact of what we do. People get really excited when they come into our galleries and they see our elephant in the rotunda and all of the other extraordinary things that they have on display. To show what's actually behind those walls with those experts working on those things is, I guess, one of my big goals. Yeah, it's next level, isn't it? Because often you think about science and technology being hand in glove and, and increasingly so because you really can't have one without the other. You're needing technology to bring it to the masses, to collaborate with other scientists around the world so that projects aren't being duplicated. You're sharing the knowledge and the learnings and projects are building on each other. Scientists are collaborating like never before, all thanks to technology. That is so true. And another thing that we think about a lot in museums is how do we make sure that we are being as inclusive as possible? Museums often have a quite a difficult history. of The way that we did things was very Western. It was very go out and discover. We know that it is our role to make sure that we make our, ourselves as accessible as possible to the entire world. 
So how do we how do we make that data available? How do how do we make data available to our our colleagues in Kenya, where it might actually be collected from from their region? How do we ensure that we're being good partners so that we are actually sharing information or providing content that helps them make decisions if if that data is not is currently not discoverable? You are passionate about STEM and you're one of the world's leading STEM experts really with what you're doing. (laughs) But often in Australia, we talk about the difficulties young women have in STEM. Do you think that's changing? And surely someone in your position can help facilitate an an even better outcome. No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's um, when I was the first woman to hold the chief scientist role at the Australian Museum, which was an honour. And certainly a lot of pressure because I don't think I did things the way that my predecessors did them. And the good part about that is that people saw someone doing things differently and, you know, relatively successfully. And I continue on that path here. In terms of is, is it changing? I would like to think so. We have a lot of women scientists, a lot of, a lot of our experts are women, but they still don't represent the proportions that you see graduating from university. So we still have a lot of, I, I know that the talking about a STEM pipeline is, is not a popular terminology these days. So whether or not it's an ecosystem or there's a lot of different influences that, that make it hard to be a woman in STEM. And so I think thinking about making science exciting for everyone, all young people, because There are so many competing things for people's brains and eyeballs and attention these days to to communicate just how how fun working in STEM can be is really important. And then to actually making making the environment conducive to someone that might have choices about what they do with their career. And does that future work with the kind of lifestyle that they want to have? Um, Certainly in STEM, life is never dull. Yeah, but that was still a pretty good pitch for women who are passionate about STEM and want to chase a career. And there's no better cheerleader and uh, and someone to aspire to than yourself, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, AM. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations with all that you do. And we'll be watching with interest from the other side of the world. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Chalk Black. Thank you, Sandra. It's been an honour. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.